Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Good morning. Good to see everybody. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if this is your first time here, welcome to the Vineyard, and uh, if you're vacationing in the area, we're glad you dropped in to be with us, and if this is your home, rock on. We're glad you're here. All right. Um, the first service, I asked uh, ask the folks, what was the name of this thing they use in retail business that labels pricing, you know, how you put the tags on things? Do you guys know the name of that particular... That's what I said, Andrew, but I was wrong, and so are you. Okay. <laughs> what is it? Thank you. Pricing gun. I thought, how appropriate. I value you that much, you know. I mean, as you walk through, and, and uh, you walk through a store, you get to set the value of everything in the store. But you know what? It's no different in life. We actually walk through life, and we have a pricing gun, do we not? I mean, we come across people, we come across groups, and we value them. We point our pricing gun at them, and we will attach a value to them. Uh, You've heard me tell some stories about getting married and and what I think uh, really goes on in the wedding vows. When I got married, uh, when I looked at my wife, you know, I really wasn't thinking about anybody but me. I wasn't thinking about my wife, and I use, I've had the opportunity to probably to do, I lost count at 75 weddings that I've done, but um, now I use a, kind of a standard vow for all weddings, and it goes something like this, if Karen and I were getting married again, I, Tim, take you, Karen, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day, to care for and to encourage in both good times and bad. I promise to live for Christ and with you in the full awareness of trust. And love, and with this commitment, I pledge to you my love. Beautiful, isn't it? It's so romantic. And, but really what I'm thinking is, I, Tim, allow you, Karen, to be my wedded wife. <laughs> For you to have and to hold me from this day. To care for me, to encourage me in both good times and bad I promise to expect you to live for Christ and with me in the full awareness of truth, trust, and love. And with this commitment, you pledge to me your love. Now, really, isn't that? I mean, that's because the value for us, especially early on in life, is not the we, it's the me. In all honesty, when I got married, I was not thinking about we. What I wanted in a mate was I wanted a good-looking wife and a good-cooking wife and a good-cooking wife. Um, it was all about, am I happy? You know, Am I getting my needs filled? And we're in this series called It's All in the Family, and there's no way to talk about family without talking about where we derive value from. How do we go about attaching value to people in our families and in life? And um, 
we are definitely in a culture of more me than we. I was in the doctor's office this past week, and I, I go to sit down, and you know, you pick up a magazine, and I picked the magazine up. This was like Thursday or Friday, Friday, I guess, and um, and look what's sitting on the shelf, on the on the table. The me, me, me generation. And I thought, wow, this is, goes right along with my sermon. This is like affirmation from God that I'm on the right track. And just as I got into it, um, they called me to go in. And so when I came out, I left, and I, I got to my truck, and I thought, I really want that magazine. So I, I went back in. I said, excuse me, I'm a pastor. I know this sounds weird, but can I have that magazine? Because I'm preaching on this topic Sunday. She kind of looked at me, and I said, it's already torn, see? It's not worth that much. <laughs> so she was very kind and uh, let me have it. You know, so uh, it was very interesting because I found a term in here, uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Have you ever heard of that one? It's pervasive in our culture right now. Narcissistic personality disorder. A disorder. It is three times as high now as it was back when I was in my 20s. Three times as high. And uh, my generation was known as the me generation. The next generation was the me, me generation. And now we're all ready up to the me, me, me generation. And so we just keep attaching more of a value to ourselves than we do the we. But the Bible is totally different than that. This culture has what we call a, places a high value on expressive individualism. That's what we celebrate. And that's what we put in front of everyone. That's our heroes or those with expressive individualism. And uh, people who can grab their 15 minutes of fame, those are our heroes, if only for 15 minutes. But the Bible starts in a totally different place. The Bible starts with the we in mind, not the me. With the we in mind. And it runs contrary to culture. It runs contrary to everything we see, even on television or in our periodicals, uh, what we read, our movies, all of this. And God takes this social view of the family as we read the Bible, as we look at what God is doing In his scripture, God takes the social view of the family and he uses it as a metaphor for life with him, doesn't he? I mean, God is our father. Jesus is our big brother, our elder brother. And then the church is our family. As we move into the New Testament, God uses the metaphor of family to represent how he deals with us and what he has given us as far as a vehicle to live life uh, and live life well. And so it starts with the family. It starts with the we. God starts his word with that. Even in the beginning, God told Adam, he says, it's not good for you to be alone. He wasn't alone for very long because it wasn't God's intention that he be alone. It wasn't about him. It was about the we. And so today as we continue, and it's all in the family, I want to look at where we uh, attach value. How do we come up with value in our families? And how do we even evaluate what we're worth? And how are we doing this with our kids and our grandkids? I think this expressive individualism has probably really wreaked havoc in our families. And so I wonder, you know, how much and how much fallout there is. But I think the scripture 
Scripture has some help for us. So we're going to pray. We're going to jump into the Scripture. We'll be over in 1 Samuel, the first chapter. And uh, if you want to turn over there, 1 Samuel 1. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We just pray your presence. I pray you breathe life on your word. Jesus, we need you. We need to see life as you see it. We need for your rule and your reign to come to our families, to come to us. And so I ask for your help this morning, God. I ask for you to help me work through this passage of Scripture and that you would help us value what you value and for us to see life the way you see it. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 1. 1 through 20, let's read this. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, And not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her her mouth. Hannah was praying with her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying because I asked the Lord for him. These books 1st and 2nd Samuel were not written by Samuel obviously because this is about his birth but they're written about him. And this is happening around 1050 uh, B.C. or so. And it's at a hinge pin in history. This is kind of in between the tribal aspect of Israel 
uh, and the monarchy when the kings would show up. And so Israel had been led by prophets and had been led by certain leaders at certain times, but they had no king. But right at this point in history, Israel is changing. You know, we're at a hinge pin in history right now in the world. Uh, right now, where we are, Christianity, as far as a socio-political uh, movement and influence, is waning. I mean, we're being shoved to the margins. I hope you know that, that Christianity is waning in America. It's waning in Europe. The only place it's really taking off big is in South America and over in Africa. We see churches blowing up and we see people coming to faith. But in America and in Europe, which we're becoming much more European in the way that we do life and the way that culture has been established, Christianity is getting bumped to the margins. Now, as someone who came out of the 60s, and didn't know anything about church, basically, I kind of like it because I think the church thrives in the margins. I think that's when the salt becomes saltier and that's when the light is more apparent. So I'm not bummed out about it. You know, I'm not distraught about it. But I just want to say we're at that place in history, much like Hannah was, where Eli was, where things were changing. And things are changing for us in the church world. Things are changing. And we have to look at life a little differently. Today, I want to, like I said, look at some ways of value that we look at one another and we look at one another in our families and some of the things we do not want to let our culture gobble up in us and that is allow us to use that uh, pricing gun. We want to use this, that pricing gun the way God intended for it to be used. So you have a fill-in in your handout if you want to track along with me and your first fill-in is this. Our value is not determined by popularity. Our value is not determined by popularity. If you'll notice in the first verse there, we get this list of names. Four generations. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, what is so awesome about those names that they are not awesome? That's what's so awesome about them. <laughs> We don't know anything about these people, but you know what? The Bible is basically, as one theologian says, the Bible is largely a story of very obscure people, folks who only occasionally show up in other histories in the world, only occasionally. And it's interesting for us to know that God recognizes people that the rest of the world doesn't recognize. God sets a value on people that the world would not say uh, have any value at all or even the world would devalue. And I wonder sometimes in our families how we promote the heroes to our children. What heroes are we putting before them? Most of the time it's the popular ones, isn't it? If you can be popular son, daughter, then you can be of this much value. And the Bible is a totally different perspective on that. Popularity does not dictate the value of a person, how popular you are. Uh, as a matter of fact, God is pretty good at taking people who are, have not been popular and using them maybe centuries after they've been around. I mean, I think of many artists, musicians that God has used down through the ages that nobody even cared for at the time that they were on the earth. How about uh, Vincent Van Gogh? Anybody remember him? The great painter, Vincent Van Gogh? I mean, Vincent, he lived a really painful life and he ended up taking his own life as a young man. 
Vincent van Gogh painted maybe 2,000 different paintings and only sold one in his young lifetime. He was a failure during his life. Nobody knew who he was or cared who he was. I think of people like Franz Schubert, a composer. Franz Schubert uh, died at the age of 31. And during his day and time when he was writing uh, his music, people didn't care that much. He was a very minor composer and he struggled to even make ends meet. But years later, around Christmas time now, we hear a little song called Ave Maria. Anybody ever heard of it? Well, that's Franz Schubert's contribution. But nobody knew who he was. He faded into history as a nobody. Emily Dickinson, anybody read her stuff? You read poetry. Emily Dickinson, what an odd person. I mean, Emily was a special person. She had this thing for white, like she was obsessed with white. She loved to wear white, and she was not that sociable of a person. They said that when people would come over to the home, you know, you're expected in that day to be very polite and welcome people when they come in your house, unlike today when people show up and your kids are like, you know, sitting on the couch. During that day, everybody lined up at the door, and when someone came in, you greeted them, and you made sure they felt welcome. Well, Emily would walk up to somebody, look at them, and turn around and walk off, and she wouldn't say a word to them. And she would go up to her room, and she would just write poetry and write poetry. And all through her life, she only had like one person who ever even saw any potential in what she was writing. But now, all these years later... If you, if you read any literature, if you take any course in, in university or anything, you're going to read some Emily Dickinson, beautiful writing. And then my favorite, when I was in middle school, this was my man, Edgar Allan Poe. I know, strange. But um, Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, he died penniless, an alcoholic, and nobody wanted to read the things that uh, he wrote. And, uh, I mean, I loved, when I was in the 7th and 8th grade, man, he was my man. I mean, I read all everything I could about him and how he would sit under trees and thunderstorms. That was really bright, right? And he'd sit under trees and thunderstorms and just feel the air and feel the rain and feel the power that was in the environment. And, and I, I don't know, it did something to me, reading about him and reading his works. And, uh, but nobody cared about him during his life. It was many, many years, years later that he became famous God's pretty good at taking the no-names and making something of them much later on. You may never see it in your life. God attaches value, not the popularity. He doesn't use that as any type of degree or scale, and neither should we in our families. We should not use popularity as, as some way to attach a, a deeper meaning or, or worth to our children because if they're popular in this area or that area, that you're, you're more appreciated and you're worth more. And that's not to say we don't want our kids to excel and do things, but don't attach a value to them as human beings. Many times nobody sees what some people are doing, the contribution they make. I think of, you know, even in the church, you know, I think of people who serve and serve or their grandmothers and there are people who are praying that nobody ever sees. They're in their... They're up early in the mornings, they're up late at night, and they're pouring their hearts out to God, and they're praying and praying. I found, Karen found my grandmother's Bible. We were cleaning our house out, and I found her little, and she told me when I was little, she said, Timmy, I pray for you every day, every day, and we were cleaning out the other day, and we found her Bible and saw where she had written. She lived to be 101 years old. She was almost 102 when she died. 
And nobody's ever heard of my grandmother, but heaven's heard of her. Heaven heard her prayers, and heaven's hearing your prayers. It's not by popularity that God establishes value. In 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 16, you know, Hannah's praying, and she's praying beneath her, her, her lips are moving, but you can't hear quite what she's saying. And, and some of us, I pray kind of like that. Always, I try to, try to pray constantly, and that's the way I can pray. And just think, don't think I'm crazy when you see me talking to myself. It's like, you know, and you, you pray beneath, you just constantly pray. And so she's praying that way, and Eli, the priest, I mean, this is a spiritual man, the pastor, right? He looks at her and thinks she's drunk. He looks at her and says, you're drunk. Sometimes even your pastor doesn't see what you're doing or misunderstands what you're doing or doesn't recognize the price that you're paying and the prayer that you're putting in. It doesn't mean that you're any less valuable at all. She's praying and he says, oh, you need to lay off the wine, Hannah. And she's like, man, I'm not drinking any wine or beer. I'm pouring my heart out to God. And you know what? God turns that around even later on because hundreds of years later, maybe even a thousand years later, I'm not sure when this happened, but the Jewish people established this pattern of prayer called the Shemoni Esrei, which is 18. And it means the 18 prayers of Hannah. And when you see Jewish people praying and you'll see that lip moving and then bobbing, and you will hear the Shimone Esrei, the 18 prayers of Hannah being prayed out of their lips underneath, just barely being spoken. Nobody cared about Hannah, and she wasn't understood, or she wasn't valued at that time, but years later, Israel still prays the Shimone Esrei. Popularity is not any way of attaching value to someone. Jesus Jesus is in the temple watching people give. Yes, Jesus watches what you give. <laughs> Luke 21, Luke 21, verses 2 through 4. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Jesus, why are you looking in the offering basket? I just want to know that. You know? So he's watching as the offering basket is passed or they're coming up. I tell you the truth, this is what Jesus says, this poor widow is put in more than all the others. Do you really think she was popular? Would anybody have valued her and her contribution in the church that day? All she had was two shavings of copper. But Jesus noticed. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This widow was not a part of the popular hip crowd at all. No one cared who she was or what she gave except one. And she got in the book. Jesus. So our value cannot be determined by popularity. Secondly, your fill-in there is our value is not determined by possessions. Our value is not determined by possessions. 1 Samuel 1, 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Hannah had no children. It was breaking her heart because in this culture, if you did not have children, you were worthless. So one had children and one did not. And the one that did was ruthless on Hannah and picked at her and made sure she knew she didn't have what it took to be valuable. But here's an interesting thing. Penina's name means fertile. And indeed she was. 
What was Hannah's name? What does it mean? Grace. 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 You know, it's really the grace of God that is the gauge of our value, how much the grace of God has been poured out into our life. And we never experience grace to any greater degree than when we are without things that we want. It is the grace of God that fills us and sustains us and keeps us. And it's the grace of God, whatever measure the grace of God is being expressed in our life that true kingdom value is attached to. It's not about your net worth, but it is about the amount of grace that is functioning in your life. What matters is what we are by way of grace. You know, it's not going to be that day when you stand before God. Nobody is going to walk up and give an opinion about you. The only opinion that's going to count is God's. And the only thing that's going to be used is the grace that's been poured out in your life through the cross of Christ. That's it. Not what someone else says or what you had. You're not going to stand before God and go, God, look at my house. God, look at my cars. God, look at my guitar. Notice my surfboard, Lord. God, notice my family. God, notice all the influence that I had. God, notice the churches I've planted. God, notice this. Not that all those things are bad. They're good. Some of them are good. Some of them are inconsequential. The only thing that counts when you and I stand before God is the grace that he has poured out on us. The grace of God. How have I responded in my life to the grace of God? Hannah, her name means grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God. Values we want to see established in our families are not based on popularity. They're not based on the things that we own, but rather by asking, has the grace of God changed me? Has it changed me as a father? Has it changed me as a mother? Has it changed me as a daughter or a son? How has the grace of God worked in your life? And also the third fill-in there is this. Our value is not determined by the amount of pain that enters our life. Our value is not determined by the degree of pain that enters our life. Some of us look at people who have gone through so much pain and we think, wow, I wonder what they did wrong. (laughs) And then we have this Eastern religion and, and I can talk about it because I used to live this way, way back. I was an advocate and a, a disciple of some of this stuff many, many, many years ago. But then we get into this blended karma, sowing and reaping thing. Like, oh, if you do this, God will do that. Oh, if bad stuff is happening to you and your family, then you must have done this. And so dependent upon the degree uh, of pain in your life, some of us would want to attach a value to them and say, wow, wonder what they did wrong. Maybe they weren't obedient enough. Maybe they haven't been faithful enough. You know, I know people 
who have lived their life as obedient as they can. They do everything they know to do to follow Jesus, and they have suffered in their life. Pain has come into their life, and it has tried to take them hostage. And some would look and maybe be tempted to look at people like that and go, what did they do wrong? Or not want to value that particular person's struggle or who they are. We can't do that, and we can't allow ourselves to be sucked into that. Look at 1 Samuel 1, 3 through 5, just the fifth verse. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. This is the husband. And the Lord had closed her womb. You can't get around that. The Lord had closed her womb. Now, what did they do wrong? What did Hannah do wrong? It doesn't say she did anything wrong. She was a gracious person full of grace, a graceful woman, and yet pain had entered her life. Her husband loved her. I, don't, I think God gave her an extra measure of grace just like her husband would give her that double portion of food as well at time to try to help her. And I think it was Luther that said this. Uh, Martin Luther said that Nothing gets to us that hasn't passed through the hand of God first. It doesn't mean that God caused it, but it does mean it didn't get to you unless it first passed through His hand. I take great comfort in that because I know that God is aware of whatever suffering and loss and pain and struggle that I might be going through at the moment, that it did pass through His hand. And you may think, well, You know, why even obey, Tim? Why even, if that's the kind of thing that happens? You know, we live in a world right now where the kingdom of God has not come. God's will is not being done fully on this earth right now. My will is being done. Your will is being done. All manner of people in the United States and the world's will is being done. Horrible people's wills are being done in this world. The devil's will is being done. And then in the midst of that, God's people pray what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On the earth as it is in heaven. You see, that's why we cry that. We pray that because we want to see the rule and the reign of God come to the earth. And you know what? He does come on occasion and He does bring His kingdom. And that's why we pray it in our families. Lord, let Your kingdom, Your rule and Your reign. You rule and reign in my family. You teach me to be the parent, Lord, as though You are ruling and reigning right now. Help me be the dad, the granddad, the mom, the grandmom, the sister, the brother, as though You were ruling completely right now on the face of the earth. But we're not there yet. But if you get to the back of the book, some of you started the book. Make sure you get to the end of this. Okay? And you, know, you get in here and you go, man, all these names. I don't know. All these names, names. Keep going. Keep going. Because you get to the very back of the book, what you will see is God does come. And His kingdom does eventually come and He puts all things to right. And the pain is going to be gone. The suffering is going to be gone. The tears that you have suffered will be gone. And healing will come 100%. But we're just not there yet. We aren't there yet. But I want you to know something. Don't you dare attach a value to yourself. If you're suffering in life, don't you think, well, God's picking on me. (laughs) 
It's like somebody said, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, hmm. We live in this world as a battle zone. We live in this broken place and we continue to pray, Thy kingdom come. Don't you dare judge yourself and think you're less value because you have suffered pain and you're going through struggles and all right now. Don't do it. And I just want to say this as your pastor, that if you turn the television on and you see anybody preaching that if you live life perfectly, life is going to go perfectly. And if you give this, you will get that. That is a bunch of BS, okay? That is not the way life is. And if you're turning your television on and you see that kind of stuff on there and you keep saying, I don't get it. I'm doing everything I know to do and life is not turning out the way I thought it would. Turn the television off and get your Bible, okay? Turn it off and get your Bible. Hannah, grace, 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 the grace of God. Fourthly, here, our value is not determined by our parents. Our value, is <laughs> our value is not determined by our parents or our family. In 1 Samuel 1, 6 through 8, because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her. You ever had somebody in your family provoke you, put you down, be a mother, a father, brother, sister, somebody keeps hammering on you, no matter what you do, it's never good enough? Just hammer, 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 devaluing you until you grow up and you think you're nothing. You're valueless. That pricing gun has been like both barrels unloaded on you. And you don't feel like, and you've taken all that in and now you're going, God, am I anything? Am I worth anything? That does not determine our value. Hannah is so downhearted and her husband comes to her. I love this in the the scripture because there in verse 8, Elkanah, her husband would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Well, no, you don't. (laughs) We husbands, I mean, get it. We're like, aren't I enough? It goes back to the vows, right? I mean, you've got me. No, you're, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not. And you know what? No human being is enough. No person, particular person, is enough. It's only in Jesus Christ and the price of that cross and who he is that can satisfy that longing and that deep need to know that I am loved forever and that I am cherished forever, and that I am my God's beloved, that He loves me. You know, that is God's heart for you. And he gets to say, the, He gets the last word in this. Let Him have the last word on you. Let Him have the last word on your value. Don't let your family set your value. Let the Father set your value. Let the real Father set your value. Lastly, the last one is our value is not determined by pop culture. Don't shout me down. Um, our value is not determined by pop culture. And I put this one last so I wouldn't be tempted to preach another hour on this. So, so I'd be squeezed right in and have to closing this out because this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, pop culture will tell our children that they're only worth 
worth any of any value if they can be sold something or used, which is the same thing. They are not valuable because they are who they are. They are valuable, valuable if a dollar can be made off of them or they can be exploited. That's it. Otherwise, we discard them. 1 Samuel 1, 9 through 11, and they're finishing eating, and Hannah prays that prayer, Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will what? Dress him up in the best clothes and put him on television. No, it's like, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will touch his head. In other words, that was a Nazarite oath. In other words, if you give me this son, I'm going to give him back to you. And we do this. God, if you give me X, I will give you Y. And Hannah comes along and says, if you give me X, I will give you X. Her culture would say, if you ever got that child and you promote them right out there, you brag about it, you put it out there because that's what's popular in this culture. Instead, she goes, God, give me this child and I will give him back to you. And you know, that's exactly what she did. That's exact, that flies in the face of that culture at that time. And the church today is swimming upstream in culture. Because a child's value is not set by the clothes they wear or how sexy they look or how much money can be made off of them. But that's all they hear constantly, all the time. We're becoming, like I said in the beginning of this, more and more, uh, well, like the Greco-Roman world was back in the first century A.D., where children were not valued. You know, if you didn't want to want your child in the Greco-Roman world, you could just take them within eight days and you could throw them out. A father could kill his child within eight days legally. They didn't like them. And it was very common. You can read about this in uh, The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. Or there's a book called When Children Became Human by a guy named Baki. And during this period of time, they would take the children, throw them out on the streets, and guess what? I mean, they would die. The abortions, the wealthier Romans could have abortions. And then came Jesus. And then came Jesus. And when Jesus came on the scene, and his church was thrust onto the scene in that first century, the Christians refused to have abortions and they would walk the streets and they would pick the discarded children up and take them into their home and care for them. Pop culture will tell you you're valueless if you can't make money for them. And if you can't be valuable, if you can't be popular, if a dollar can't be made off of you, if some good cannot come out of your life for the benefit of someone else wringing out another dime, another quarter, another dollar from you. But Jesus says you're valuable because, because, because you're his creation. You're his beloved. And the church now swims upstream. The church was known in those first hundred years because they did not abort their children. And they did not have sex outside of their marriages. And they cared for those who were discarded. The church became famous for those things the first century. And you know what, folks? Church, we're right back to it almost now. What will we do as a church? God, help us to encourage and to tell our children, our grandchildren, and one another that we are valuable because God says 
We are His, and He has created us. And when He did, He did a very good thing. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.